We're going to continue our study through the book of Genesis. Before we get started, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for this story that we're about to dive into, Lord, how it so deeply connects to the gospel and what you did for us and the sacrifice that you made for us that we could be forgiven, that we could enter into relationship with God once again. Lord, that we could experience a, a taste of heaven even here on earth and being in fellowship with you, Lord, but recognizing that this life is only temporary and you have an eternity um, waiting for us, Lord, if we accept the sacrifice that you provided. Jesus, so I pray that you would bless this time, that your spirit would speak to your church. God, um, help us to remember the sacrifice that you provided for us. In your name, amen. What if I said, tonight, instead of doing our typical sermon teaching, I was going to give you a test? like an actual test, like a multiple choice test. Like uh, if I said, Elizabeth, come down here and pass out the Scantrons, we're going to do a Bible trivia test. That's what we're doing tonight for service. How would you respond? Bring it on. Exactly. I knew it. Some people would say, bring it on. Probably not most of you though. Most of you would have been like, uh, I don't know why they've given us a test. Is the church about taking tests? You might get a little frustrated. We might, why is he, he going to give us a, a Scantron multiple choice test in church? That's for school. That's not for the church. It's not all about what we know. Yeah, it's good to know things, but it's not all about that. It's not about, all about what we know, right? And I agree with that. I wouldn't give you a multiple choice test for a church service. But you have to agree with me that the church needs to be tested. And maybe not in our knowledge all the time and Bible trivia questions, but we certainly need to be tested in our faith. We're going to look in this story in Genesis chapter 22. That's exactly what God does with Abraham. He tests him in his faith. And we're going to see that this test goes so much deeper than we could ever imagine at first glance. Brings me to the title of this teaching, The Test of Faith. Simply, The Test of Faith. Now, we saw. God's faithfulness displayed in Genesis chapter 21, right? Where the promised son was given birth. He arrived on the scene. This promise that we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 12, finally fulfilled in Genesis chapter 21. And one of the things that we focused on was remembering God's faithfulness. But another thing we talked about was how Isaac is a typology of Christ, meaning that Isaac gives us a picture of what Jesus was going to do. It's like a little story that gives us some clarity, some little hints, some little insight to what the Messiah, what the promised son would accomplish. Important to know as we dive into this text, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. See, right off the bat, in the very first verse of this chapter, it says, God tested Abraham. Now, God is all-knowing. He knows what's going to happen here in this story, right? He's the author and finisher of it. He knows whether Abraham is going to pass or fail this test, so this test, it's really more for Abraham than it is for God. God knows what's going to happen. God is testing Abraham both to grow him in his faith and to show him where his faith truly lies, where his faith is really at. And that is the tendency. That is what God does with each of us. He tests our faith to grow our faith, which brings me to my first point. God tests 
us to grow us and show us. God tests us to grow us and show us. What do I mean? It's James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. It says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You remember that word perfect is the word mature in the Greek. So we know that God tests us to grow us. He tests us to mature us. We don't count it all joy because of the testing. We count it all joy because what God is doing and producing in us through the testing. He's using the testing to mature us to become more like Jesus. See, usually we hate the test but we love the growth. We hate the testing from God, but we love the growth that the testing produces. What do I mean? So when I first came to the Lord, about two, three months into my salvation, I was at that, uh, this place called Calvary House, many of you know, and um, I worked in like the custodial department, and we had these radios on, and there was these group of guys on the radios. This is a really big church, so we had a, like 10 guys on custodial. There's these group of guys on the radio, and they kept messing around with different people that they didn't like on the other ends of the radio, and they just keep messing around, messing around, warning after warning after warning. They didn't take heed to the warning, and so every single person on custodial got punished. I never did anything. I was completely innocent. I never said one thing about anyone on the radio because you don't know who's talking on the radio. They'd make little noises and mess with little people and make little voices and things like that. So what happened was we all got punished. We were only able to see our family members once a month. They would come for this thing called family day. So you would only see your family once a month. Now family day was coming up the next weekend and our director decided none of you guys on custodial can see your family this, this month. They're not coming. And at first, I was like, dude, I didn't do anything. <laughs> you know, I didn't say that, but I'm thinking it. And then the Lord ministered, I'm testing you. I'm testing you. What, what are you testing me in the Lord? I'm testing you in leadership. What do you mean? See, in leadership, so often we have to suffer for the sins of others. We have to suffer for the wrongs of others. I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, Jesus, isn't that what you did? You suffered for the sins of others. Yeah, I'm trying to mature you to become more like me, and I'm trying to produce these leadership character qualities in you. So he was testing me to grow me. And once I got it, I accepted it. Okay, I won't see my parents for two months. That's fine. But that's the nature of the Lord. He tests us to grow us. He's trying to produce character in us. Not only that, he's also showing us where our faith is already. And that's what he's doing with Abraham. He's trying to reveal to Abraham where his faith is, what his faith looks like, where he's at in his faith. Like any good teacher, God tests us to reveal to us where we are. It's our evaluation. Where am I at in my faith? Well, I'm not going to know until I'm tested. If everything's easy and breezy and chill and nice and comfortable all the time, I'm not going to grow. And I'm not going to know where my faith truly lies. That's what he's doing to Abraham. He's trying to show him where his faith is. So often, the Lord does this to us as well. He'll, he'll test us, not just to grow us, but to show us. So a couple years back, um, my, the director then of Patmos, like the overseeing director, Zach, he came to me. He's like, hey, next term, you're teaching Revelation. And I had been teaching a little bit, but teaching Revelation, I was like, really? Pastor Chet was the only one that had taught Revelation. You're teaching Revelation next term. Start studying. I was like, haha, joke, funny, not happening. Two weeks go by. He comes up to me and he says, hey, how's the studying been going? It's like, studying for what? He's like, Revelation, I told you two weeks ago you're teaching Revelation this term. You gotta be ready. Pastor Chet's not gonna be there. Dude, are you serious, bro? I really gotta do this? All right, so I started studying. Every day for a few months straight, every moment that I got, and you know what happened? It didn't turn out too bad. The teaching didn't turn out too bad. I was nervous, I was scared, but God was testing me in my faith to reveal his faithfulness. 
such is the case, so often God asks us to do things that challenge us in our faith, and then he shows up, and it ends up working out way better than we thought it would. That's what's going to happen here with this test with Abraham. He's going to test us to show, test Abraham to show him, hey, you have more faith than you realize. And we're going to see a little switch here at the end of this story. So let's look at this test and what God asks Abraham to do. Verse 2, it says, Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, this story is a picture of the gospel. Everything that happens from here on out foreshadows the gospel. It foreshadows what Jesus did on the cross, even including the resurrection. So you're going to have to follow me here. I'll make the connections, but we'll also talk, to, talk about some practical application. Okay, so look at what he says here. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Wait a minute, Abraham had two sons, right? He had Ishmael. Not as far as God's concerned. He only has one son. Abraham uh, has one son. Ishmael's out of the picture. Ishmael was never to be a son. That wasn't part of God's plan. Abraham messed that up, right? By sleeping with the bondwoman when he wasn't supposed to, trying to fulfill the promise in his flesh. Now, God's going to use the whole thing, but according to God, he says, you have one son. There's only one son that I'm concerned about. And he says, whom you love. This is the first time in the Bible that love is mentioned. Interestingly enough, it's the love between a father and his son. The first time the word love, love is mentioned is in, here, right, in Genesis chapter 22. The love between a father and his son, not just the love between the father and his son, asking the father to sacrifice the son whom he loves. You following me? He says, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I tell you, okay? He says, offer him as a burnt offering. This word offer is the word Allah, Allah, not Allah like the, um, like the Muslim God, the God of Islam, Allah. It's the Hebrew. It means to be lifted up. I need you to offer up. I need you to lift up my, or your son to me. You're going to lift him up as an offering, as a sacrifice to me. In John chapter 12, verse 32 to 33, Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men into myself. And Jesus was indeed lifted up on the cross. So practically, the burnt offering would mean that uh, Abraham would um, slaughter Isaac and then burn him as a burnt offering. You're like, what? God really would have someone do that to their child? He would have them slaughter them and burn them as a burnt offering? Now we have to remember this is for a specific purpose because God is trying to get a specific lesson across to us. He's trying to teach us about the gospel in these very early chapters of Genesis. God is completely against sacrificing children. We see it in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21. There's a lot of content tonight, so I'm going to tell you some of the verses. If you can flip there and follow me in time, great, but I'll tell you uh, what some of these say. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21, it says, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. Then in Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 5, it says, they offer their sons in the fire to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. God's like, I wouldn't think of such a thing as someone offering a child to God. So this isn't really God's heart that we would sacrifice children to him. That's not his plan. He's against that. We see that in other parts of scripture. This is for a very specific reason to get a very specific message across to us. On top of that, this would contradict God's promise, right? 
that Isaac would be the promised son, that the fulfillment, that the nations would be blessed through your seed. Isaac is part of that lineage. If Isaac doesn't have a son, then that original promise back in Genesis chapter 12, it can't be fulfilled. So this causes some confusion. Why would God ask him to do this? See, God's asking Abraham to just trust him even when it doesn't make sense. Picking it up, in that last little part of verse 2, it says, the mountains of which I tell you, if you look back, these are the mountains of Moriah. This is actually where Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, the city of God was established. If you flip with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, we see here, now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, that's the temple, at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Interesting, right? Where the Lord had appeared to his father, David, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. See, God calls Abraham to go to the mountain range of Moriah to sacrifice his son. Now, the Moriah mountain range, it runs through Jerusalem, and there's a specific peak, there's a sp specific point in the Mount Moriah mountain range called Calvary, Calvary's Hill. Many scholars and theologians will suggest that the very mountain that God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on was the same exact place that Jesus, God's only son whom he loved, was sacrificed. This story is fascinating and it gets even more fascinating as we continue in verse 3. It says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood of the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham rises early in the morning and he just goes. He doesn't waste any time. He doesn't argue with God. Imagine those of you who have children, if God asked you to sacrifice one of your children, you think you'd rise early in the morning and be like, all right, God, yeah, no problem. I'll do it. No hesitation, no arguing, ar arguing no kickback. Abraham just does it willingly. Why? Because he's surrendered to and submitting to God. He's surrendered to God. He's submitting to God even when he doesn't understand because Abraham doesn't know. He doesn't exactly know how this is all going to pan out as we'll see later in scripture, but he's submitted and surrendered to God. See, it's easy to obey when we understand what God's doing, but true submission is revealed when we choose to obey God when we don't understand or we don't agree. That's what real submission is. It's obedience when we may not understand. It's obedience when we may not agree. And that's what we see here with Abraham. So look what it says here. The end of verse three, it says, he went to the place of which God had told him. So he does what God is telling him to do and he goes where God is telling him to go. If we're doing what God has called us to do, but we're not doing it in the place where he's called us to go, then it's still disobedience. See, God could call us to do a specific thing. He could call me to be a teacher or a pastor or a counselor or whatever, but if I'm, not, if I'm doing it back in Florida then it's still disobedience because I'm not supposed to be doing it, but I'm supposed to be doing it right here. So it's not just about doing what God called you to do. It's about doing what God called you to do, where God called you to do it. And that's exactly what we see here again with Abraham. Picking it up in verse four. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. This will come up later. We'll talk about it later. Pick it up in verse five. And Abraham said to this young man, to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. He says, we're gonna go yonder and worship. This word worship in the Hebrew is shaka. That's, that's S-H-A-C-H-A-H. It means to bow down. It's the act of submission and surrender. 
That's what Abraham is going to the mountain to do. He is submitted to God in the act of surrendering his son. That submission is played out in the surrender of his son. And it says, And I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. That's very interesting. Think about this. Verse 5. God just told Abraham to go sacrifice his son. Why would Abraham ever think that they were both going to come back? God told him to sacrifice his son. Why would he think we're both going to come back to you? It's only Abraham and Isaac that are going up to that mountain. I don't think Abraham quite knows how or why this is going to happen. He just has faith that somehow, some way, God is going to fulfill his promise. He's not going to break his promise, and he knows that Isaac is the promised son, and this promise must be fulfilled through Isaac's seed. If Isaac's dead, it's not going to happen. See, Abraham has faith in the midst of the impossible, which brings me to my second point. Have faith in the impossible. Have faith in the impossible. If you flip with me to Hebrews chapter 11, it gives us some insight. This is a fascinating section of scripture to what's going on, what Abraham might be thinking in this moment. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promised says, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. There's a couple things there. They're saying Abraham believed that even if he sacrificed Isaac, God would raise him from the dead, that he'd be resurrected. So he's even saying, okay, if I kill him, God's just going to bring him back to life because I know God is a man of his, of his word and he's going to fulfill his promise no matter what it takes, no matter how impossible it seems. This is also a picture of the resurrection, which we'll discuss later. We need to be people that believe God in his promises no matter how impossible the situation may be. God brings us to those impossible places. Maybe he says he's going to bring restoration and healing to a relationship that you think there's no way this relationship's ever going to be healed. Maybe he tells you you're going to have another child like you did Abraham. You're like, there's no way it's going to happen. He'll bring us to the brink of impossibility to bring us to a fullness of faith. He wants to prove himself faithful and he tests us he puts us through those impossible scenarios to further our faith so we ought to have faith in the impossible because we see God fulfill his word in these impossible circumstances Genesis chapter 22 verse 6 so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. See, look at this. Abraham gives Isaac the wood. Isaac's called to carry the wood up the hill to his potential death. Remind you of anything? Jesus carried the wooden cross up the hill to his ultimate death. This is... Uh, Obviously, a typology through the whole thing, but these words are important. The wood is equal to the cross and the gospel. The fire, fire symbolizes a lot of different things in, the, um, in, in Scripture, but I'm going to talk about a couple things, so follow me. So fire is also a symbol of judgment. If you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 Paul writes, he became sin who knew no sin that we would become the righteousness of God in him, right? So Jesus was judged. He 
bore the weight of all the sins of the world so that we could be covered with his blood, with his righteousness, that we wouldn't be judged. He was judged so that we wouldn't. We also see this knife, Jesus, conveniently, was pierced with a spear, was pierced with this sharp object. But I want to look at another thing here. See, this is also a picture of our Christian walk. Okay, what do I mean? See, this is also a symbol of the equipping of the Christian. So let me make the point and then I'll explain. God will equip us, point number three, to pass the test. God will equip us to pass the test. See, God um, will use our failures, absolutely, but he sets us up for success. He equips us to be successful in this Christian life first thing he equips us with is the call. He gives us the calling to take up our cross. That's every Christian's calling. It's Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 says, if anyone, Jesus is speaking, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me taking up the cross daily, it speaks of the sacrifice and obedience it takes to truly follow God. He gives us the call. He equips us with the call to take up our cross. Also, look what it says. And he took the fire in his hand, right? We talked about how fire is a symbolism for judgment, but multiple things. It's also symbolism of the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's several different passages, but one, if you remember, if you recall, in Acts chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, the Holy Spirit descended upon the people at Pentecost, and they were filled with the Spirit and tongues of fire. Okay? Tongues of fire. You see the symbolism with the Holy Spirit. If you flip with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Guys, there's so much in this chapter. It's a lot, I know, but I was praying. I was like, I could do it in two, but then we wouldn't get the full story. So we got a lot to cover. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As his divine power has given to all things, to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us, exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. He's given us his divine nature. What's his divine nature? It's his Holy Spirit. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit to have the strength to pick up our cross. So not only does he equip us with the call to take up our cross, the Christian walk, he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit, his divine nature, all things that pertain to life and godliness so that we would be equipped, that we would be strengthened to take up our cross. And not only that, he also speaks of this knife. Abraham has this knife. This word in the Hebrew is meekaleth, not Hebrew, so if I'm saying it wrong, don't judge me. Me'akaleth, it's M-A-A-K-E-L-E-T-H. This is a knife with either a single or double-edged blade. And it comes from the root word, a call, A-K-A-L, which means to feed or to eat. So this is a connection to and symbolic of the word of God. Remember in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, he talks about the word of God in its symbolism being the sword of the word. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces, it divides. So not only does he equip us with the call to take up our cross, he equips us with the power to carry our cross. He also gives us the word to show us the way to carry the cross. Genesis chapter 22, verse 7 says, but Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? We got the fire, we got the wood, but where is the lamb? The rest of the Bible is centered around this question. 
where is the lamb? Where is the lamb of God? The rest of the Bible is about this. And God gives us hints. He gives us prophecies and so many scriptures to point us in the direction that the lamb of God is coming. And look at what God says. Sorry, what Abraham says in verse 8. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. God will provide for himself the lamb. Not only will God provide the lamb, not only will God provide for himself the lamb, God will provide himself as the lamb. The lamb of God. And look at John chapter 1. All throughout scripture for thousands and thousands of years, we've been waiting. The prophets were waiting. The saints of all were waiting for when the scripture would be fulfilled. And look at what John, uh, John the Baptist says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. He says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All this build up only to be fulfilled by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. See, all the burnt offerings in the world, all the sacrifices in the world couldn't atone for the sins of man. It would only be God's sacrifice. It would only be his lamb. It would only be God in the flesh that would be a sufficient sacrifice for the atonement of all the world's sins. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 22 verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now many theologians believe that Isaac's in his 30s at this point. If you do the math, it's somewhere between 5 and 36, but most scholars will suggest that he's in his 30s at this point. If Isaac's in his 30s, Abraham's, we already, he was 100 when he had Isaac, so he's 130-something. You're not going to tell me that this old man Abe is going to bind Isaac on the altar if Isaac isn't willing, right? But Isaac was willing. He was obedient. He could have struggled. He couldn't, he could have gotten away, but no, he was obedient. He was obedient to the point of death. That's the mind of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 8, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. One of the characteristics of that mind, he says, he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Verse 10, And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So he stretched out his hand. The knife is coming down. Okay? Isaac there's no, nothing in Scripture that suggests that he was struggling. Nothing. He's completely obedient. He's completely willing to die. He's willing to be the sacrifice. He submitted to his father's will even when it meant laying down his life. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? In Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he says, if it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was willing to lay down his life as the sacrifice, just like Isaac. Genesis chapter 22, verse 11, it says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Look at this. If you've been um, with us in our studies in the last few weeks, who's speaking here? If you look back at verse 11, but the angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is Jesus. It's a Christophany. It's a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, if you have more questions about this, uh, you can pick up one of the 
last several teachings in Genesis, we've talked about this several times, it's Jesus looking down at Abraham getting ready to sacrifice Isaac, knowing the author and finisher of our faith, knowing how this was all going to pan out and how he was going to be the fulfillment of it and that the last moment as the knife is coming down, he stops it because this was to be a story to give us a picture of what he was going to do, not what Abraham could do. See, Abraham, he displays his love towards God by willingly sacrificing his son. And God, he displays his love towards us by willingly sacrificing his son, his only son, whom he loved. So often people will read this story and say, dude, what's up with God? Why would he allow Abraham to sacrifice? Why would he tell Abraham to sacrifice his son? Now we always have to remember he didn't make him sacrifice his son. He told him to, but he stopped him, right? Because this goes far deeper. God wants us to understand how deep his love is toward us. Now, any man in here or even woman that has a son or even a daughter, it's like, imagine giving that up. Imagine sacrificing that for people. Imagine sacrificing that child for your enemy, that people that, for people that want nothing to do with you, that rebel against you. Imagine that for strangers. God wants us to understand how deeply he loves us, that he would sacrifice his only son for people that wanted nothing to do with him for people that were enemies of him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We didn't want God's way. We wanted our own and yet he still displays this love towards us. He wants us to empathize and understand how much love and how much sacrifice this actually was. Picking it up in verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Wait a minute, Abraham said God would provide the lamb, but a lamb's not provided, but a ram is provided. This is to show us, this is to tell us, hey, the lamb wasn't provided there. You're still supposed to be looking for the lamb. And again, we see that fulfilled in John chapter one when Jesus comes on the scene. Picking it up in verse 14, it says, and Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is where the Lord is given the name or reveals the name Jehovah Jireh. God is our provider, right? The Lord provides. Now we see Abraham experiences God's provision through this ram, through this sacrifice. God provided this sacrifice so that he wouldn't have to sacrifice his son. But it goes much deeper than that for us as believers, knowing the fullness of the scriptures and how this was fulfilled. See, God, he provided the life and death of his son, Jesus Christ, in hopes that we would live for him. See, he provided Christ. That was a provision. That was a sacrifice for us. But he still has the hope that we'll choose to live for him. So often, when God asks us to give up something, it's only because he has something so much better in return. He's saying, give me your life and I'll give you such a better life. Just give me your life. I'm like, I don't want to give you my life. Give me your life. I got such a better life for you. Have any of you guys seen that, um, uh, that little picture with um, Jesus and the little girl and he has a, a, a huge teddy bear behind his back and he's leaning out like this and he's asking the girl for her little baby teddy bear. And he's saying, just give me the little teddy bear she doesn't know he has this huge teddy bear behind his back. He's like, dude, just give me this little thing. Surrender this little thing because I got such bigger, greater things for you in your life. You just got to surrender. That's what Abraham did. He, he surrendered. Which brings me to my fourth and final point. Ultimate surrender 
leads to ultimate blessings. Ultimate surrender leads to ultimate blessings. We hate this word surrender in the Bible, don't we? Surrender, oh, I hate surrender, death to self. It's not appealing, it's not fun, but it's exactly what we need if we want this blessed life. Look at me, look with me to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says this so many times in so many different ways because it's important. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, he says, he who finds his life will lose it and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Saying, you want to find your life? Give it up for me. Give up your life for my sake and you'll find true life. You'll find the blessed life. I have such a greater life for you than you could ever imagine, but you're not going to get it if you keep holding on to your life. You need to give it up. I just got louder, yeah? Yeah? You guys can finally hear me? No, cool. <laughs> uh, Okay. Bonhoeffer, he says this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor that got persecuted and killed in Nazi Germany. Um, he says, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the calling of the Christian, to come and die. It's like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, Jesus is the way. His way was the cross. The resurrection didn't come till after the death. It's the same message for us, it's the great exchange. He says, you give me your life and I will live my life through you. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. You can write it down. He says, for I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm identifying with the crucifixion. Paul got it. He knew Jesus is the way. I must identify with the crucified Christ. I must identify with his death before I can ever experience the resurrected life, the transformed life. If I want him to live through me, I need to die to self. I need to deny myself. Now, we who have been walking with the Lord for years, by the way, I wouldn't have even remembered this. Patty reminded me that it's my, um, it's my spiritual birthday today. I forgot. I was thinking it was September 1st all day. So it's amazing. So this even hits home even more. But so often when we get called from our misery, um, to the blessed life that God wants for us. We get this, oh, die to self. Yeah, I'm so zealous. I'm so gung-ho about the things of Jesus. Um, but the problem comes when we forget. We forget how good we really have it in Christ and we can think about the things that we had before. We can put ourselves back in that place. And now, remember, follow me. This is where Abraham said, Jehovah Jireh, God provided. I want each and every one of you to think back. Think back to all the ways. First, think back to the provision of Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. Think back to the sacrifice that Jesus made, that God gave and provided for us. Now, think about the provision since then. Think about what you have in your life in Christ now that you didn't have before. Think about your provision that you made for yourself before you had Christ. Me, you know what I was able to provide for myself, my life without Christ? Um, let me think. Addiction, um, horrible relationships with friends and family members, um, people not even wanting me to be around their house, um, pretty much ulti ultimate utter misery. That's what I provided for, my, that's what I can provide for myself. I know that that's my provision for myself, but God, his provision, giving my life to the Lord on top of this amazing relationship with the Lord. He's giving me love, He's giving me joy. He's giving me peace. He's blessed me with a wife. We got two puppies. Our family's great right now. We got all these different things. I don't have any more student loans. God provided that. Want to hear a crazy story? 
my grandmother last year. So I was doing full-time ministry. I started getting paid a little bit, paying off the minimal, $16,000 in student loans at Florida State. Just paying off the minimal, trying to be a good steward. She's like, hey, um, if you need some help financially, I can loan you some money. You just let me know if you need anything because we were just getting married. I was like, you know what? Instead of just barely paying off a little more than the interest with these student loans, um, I said, how much money could you help me out with? (laughs) So I told her how much this was. She said, she said, yeah, I can do that. No problem. I'm like, what? Okay. Um, all right. Paid off the student loans. Now I'm just paying, sending the checks to my grandma. So I'm not just like in the hole constantly. I'm actually paying off the loan instead of just paying interest in a little more. So after a few months of doing this, my grandma sends me a text and she says, she calls Jesus Yeshua because that's his Hebrew name. Um, she says, just as Yeshua has forgiven our debt, so too do I forgive yours. I'm not taking any more money from you. Stop sending it to me. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? $16,000. I'm like, oh my gosh. I just started weeping. It's like, because she had to do it like that. Like, just as Jesus forgave our debt, so do I forgive yours. And that's exactly what the Lord ministered to her. And that's what she did. The provision of the Lord, it's not about the material things. It's not about the student loans. It's not about the financial things. It's about that relationship with him. But so often we can look back and see how many ways the Lord provided. See, last week we remember that Um, Abraham, he planted that tamarisk tree to remember God's faithfulness. We got to do whatever we can do as well to remember God's provision and how he's provided. It's so easy to let time go by and we haven't seen God's provision or whatever. We're in a rut financially or whatever it may be and we'll forget all that God provided. Abraham, here he's remembering the provision of the Lord. Verse 15, we're just about done. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Remember, three days have gone by, okay? It was three days. Then they took, um, Abraham took Isaac up, almost sacrificed him, didn't. Then Then Isaac rose from the altar and then they rose to go to Beersheba. See, this is a picture of the resurrection. This is a picture of the resurrected Christ. From the command to sacrifice Isaac to the moment that he rose from the altar was three days. And that's what he's saying back in Hebrews chapter 11. Figuratively, he's speaking of, the author of Hebrews is speaking of the resurrection. Verse 20 says, Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Huz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, uh, Buzz, <laughs> Chest, <laughs> Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel, and Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, this concubine whose name was Rumah, and also bore Teba, Gahem, Tehash, Makah. Okay, that genealogy, I want us to focus on one thing that I think is extremely important. Look at this name in here, and Bethuel begot Rebekah. Who's Rebekah? That's gonna be Isaac's wife. Look at this. Through this sacrifice, through this almost sacrifice, we see this reference to the bride of the promised son. Follow me? It was through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that his bride was birthed. The church is the bride of Christ. Now what's so interesting about this when you look back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, 
when God decided, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to bless you with a woman. How did he do it? He gave him a deep sleep, and what happened? He took the rib out of his side, and through that rib, through his side, what was created? His bride, his wife, Eve. In John chapter 19, verse 34, the moment Christ died, he was pierced on his side. In that moment, the church was born. See, there's so much symbolism in this text. Without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is no bride. There is no church. We're not here. There's something deep that the Lord wants us to understand. I love this story. It's absolutely amazing. Very early in the Bible, we see this specific story that gives us a foreshadowing of exactly what Jesus was going to do when he came to this earth and died on the cross. Now, Abraham, I don't think that he knew all this stuff was going to play out the way it played out. He was just simply being obedient to the Lord. He didn't realize that this test of faith went so much deeper but that tends to be our reality. See, God was testing Abraham's faith to give all that read this story a picture of Jesus. God tests our faith often, and we don't always know why, but we can be sure that at the very least, he's testing our faith to give others a picture of Jesus. He's using our trial. He's using our testing to give others the story of the gospel. Now, so much of that depends on us and how we choose to walk through that, whether we portray the character of Christ or whether we walk away from Jesus, but it's an opportunity. Our test is an opportunity for other people to see Jesus. That's what this is. Abraham didn't know this at the time. He was just trying to be obedient to what God called him to. But if he didn't take the test and really embrace it, we wouldn't have this perfect picture of the Lord and Savior that was to come, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this story. God, it's so deep, so profound, so amazingly connects to what you did, Jesus, on the cross, God. It's a powerful, powerful story. Lord, and I pray we would never forget it, Jesus, that we would remember the provision, the ultimate provision, the sacrifice that we couldn't provide. You provided, Jehovah Jireh. That's all we really need, God. You may provide in other areas, but all we need is the sacrifice that unified us with you, gave us the ability to be back in communion with you. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what tests come, it's only temporary. God, I pray that you would give us the power and the strength to magnify your name and your story, the story of the gospel through our testing. In Jesus' name, amen.